Well, good morning, everybody. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. And once you find your way to Acts chapter 22, mark that, and then we're going to hold our Bibles up and say the prayer that we always pray. But I'm having trouble getting my apron tied here. And I know that my wife will say, Max, when in the world have you ever put on an apron? And I will say, I did it already twice today. <laughs> so I'm very experienced with wearing an apron. Ah, there we go. Nope, this way. Now, if you have your Bibles ready... You've got your place marked there in Acts chapter 22. Let's hold our Bibles up and let's say together the prayer that we pray every time we open the book of Acts. You ready? Dear Lord, thank you for your wonderful acts. What you did then, would you do again? And what you did through them, would you do through us? In Jesus' name, amen. I watched my wife, Deanlin, uh, bake a cake the other day. Not that I've never seen anybody bake a cake before. The truth of the matter is, uh, we who do not cook are constantly impressed by those who do. It's an astounding thing to watch somebody like my wife as she buzzes around the kitchen like a queen bee in her hive. You know, when I go into the kitchen, I've been known to open the refrigerator looking for ketchup or, or mayonnaise and stand there for two or three days before I, I find it. Not Deanlin. Boy, she reaches in with these no-look grabs and she pulls out the eggs. She gets the milk ready. She gets all of the ingredients spread out on the table with the utensils and the bowl and the spatulas and the this and the that and the drill and the hammer. All the things that a, a person uses whenever they make a, a cake. And then her whole system, her whole body goes into activity. And she becomes literally a blur of activity. And eggs start flying. And coffee and tea and sugar and flour, and all those necessary ingredients of a good cake. They start flying through the air. Just the right amount. Perfectly measured. To the point where the right cake will result. She is the Cleopatra of cuisine. Da Vinci of Da Kitchen. Boss of the bakery, Lord of the lard. <laughs> and when everything is mixed in just the right way, in just the right amount, <laughs> she dumps it into the pan. <laughs> Rachel Ray got nothing on me. And she mixes it up, and she takes the pan, and she pops it into the oven, and she sets it at just right, 350 degrees. 
And then she looks at me and she says those words that I oh so long to hear. Want to lick the bowl? <laughs> and I fall at her feet and I call her blessed. <laughs> and I lick the bowl and the spoon and the spatula and the beater. And I kiss her feet. And I wonder if what I see in the kitchen isn't a parable of what we see as God works in our lives. He must have a recipe. For are we not a, a, a conglomeration of, of ingredients, a composite of, of skin color, personality, skills, interests, passions, a dash of our dad, a splash of our mom, a, a strong dose of culture and environment. And then somebody comes along and mixes it all up. <laughs> Transfers, breakdowns, breakups, breakouts. Education, vocation, difficulties, opportunities. They all get in there. And somebody, it seems, is mixing them all together. And heaven knows, every so often we feel the heat. In fact, according to heaven, the hand of heaven sets the temperature. I thank you, high God. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made. Bit by bit, sculpted. from nothing into something, like an open book. You watched me grow from conception to birth. And all the days of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd lived even one day. Yes, before your mother cuddled you, and before your father changed you, your heavenly father had his eyes upon you. You're not a coincidence of, of fate. You're not a consequence of, of nature. You're not a random collection of molecules and, and DNA. You are God's recipe. Blended and stirred and shaken together by your Creator. God has made us what we are. <clears throat> In Christ Jesus, God made us to do good works, which God planned in advance for us to live our lives doing. Can you conjure up the possibility of the time before time in which your Maker looked into the future and He foresaw all the details, the needs, and the demands of this day, this generation, he determined that you were the perfect person to live on the earth at this very time. Now there's a thought. And he wrote in a book the day of your birth. He wrote in a book the day of your death. He determined the recipe of your life, your skills, your challenges, your abilities, 
And he placed you within the right boundaries of this day. And here you are. If that don't take the cake. The Apostle Paul is a living promise. Living proof of this passage. We've been looking at Paul as we've looked at the back half of the book of Acts. Because it's basically the story of Paul's life. At a certain point in his life. He finds himself in the city of Jerusalem. Having been a missionary overseas for many years. He's come back to Jerusalem. And he's called onto the carpet for doing things that he really did not do. But he's given an opportunity to defend himself. And he begins his defense by giving his resume. In Acts chapter 2. Look in your scriptures, if you will, in verses 3 and 4. Paul said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. What city? The city of Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a foremost rabbi, instructor of rabbis, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are today. Paul was raised in Tarsus. He later in Acts 26 says Tarsus was an important city. And he was not exaggerating the case. Tarsus was only a few miles from the, port, uh, from the border, making it a port city. And he, the city was a great center of enterprise and exchange. Anyone growing up in Tarsus would have been immediately exposed to a variety, a tapestry of cultures and languages. Tarsus was one of the cities included by the Roman Empire on their network, their highway system. It was an important city, and it shared importance with cities like Pisidia, Iconium, Derbe, Ephesus, Syrian Antioch, and Caesarea. And while Paul was a, a young man growing up in, in Tarsus, he would have met people from these cities. These are cities that he would later visit when he was a missionary. And while it's unlikely that he visited these cities in his youth, he was at least acquainted with them, like you would be growing up in San Antonio, acquainted with Dallas or, or Houston or El Paso, cities that you have heard of. He was, he, he, by the time he, he was old enough to leave Tarsus, he had a Mediterranean map on his mind. Tarsus was a city of scholars. It competed with the cities of Alexandria, in Athens as the academic seats of the day. Paul would have grown up in the company of students and professors. And at a young age, he would have become a student himself. And that's where he developed such a fluency and facility with the lingua franca of his day, Greek. One could not be a leader in the ancient world without a certain level of fluency in Greek. Many people would grow up with what we could call a pigeon-level Greek, where they could do buying and selling. And yet there were others, like Paul, who spoke Greek with a fluency on an intellectual level. Any serious study of Greek to this very day, whether religious or secular, involves the study of the Greek written by the Apostle Paul. And it was in Tarsus that he mastered this language. And it became the language of his heart. It became the language of his life. 
And because he could speak it, he would be able to enter any area of academics or, or leadership like Mars Hill and converse in the language of Greek. But that's not all. Paul not only picked up the language of the world, he was given the passport of the world. He was born as a Roman citizen. Yes, his parents were Jewish, but he was born a Roman citizen. A Roman citizenship was bequeathed upon people who were willing to pay for it. And apparently his father was willing to pay for it. He paid for it with two years' worth of salary. And these two years' worth of salary would come who knows where. Maybe from tent making, because the Apostle Paul was a tent maker. And surely he learned the skill from his father. Now don't think when you think tent making of those little pup tents that some of us stayed in when we were Cub Scouts. You need to think of these large pavilion tents that the Roman legions would use as they traveled around ever mobile in the Roman Empire. And they relied upon skilled tent makers to make durable tents that could withstand the weather and become the home or the camping place for the Roman legion armies. Paul's father might have been one of these. And perhaps in exchange for some tents, he was given a Roman citizenship. However, he received it. Paul inherited from his father the ability to, to make tents, uh, to make a living. He also inherited from his father this Roman passport. He left Tarsus with a, an appreciation for cultures. He left Tarsus with a high level of, of linguistic skill. Everything that an itinerant missionary would need, Paul had by the time he left Tarsus. And that was only the beginning. Because then he went to Jerusalem as a young boy. His parents saw in him a future rabbi. And they instilled within him a love for his Jewish nation. He once called himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. He would memorize large sections of the Torah and digest the law of Moses. And likely as a young teenager, maybe as young as 12, even 13 years of age, he was sent from Tarsus to Jerusalem. As he reflected on his adolescence, he wrote this. He said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, I was valedictorian of my class. I was one of the best students. I was zealous. I poured my energy into the understanding of the law of Moses and the teachings of the Torah. Who better would be equipped to explain how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law than one who was a student of the Old Testament law. Interesting side note. Many scholars believe that Jesus and Paul were about the same age. Here's why. It's based on the possibility that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin when he persecuted the church. We don't know, but there is suggestion in Scripture that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a elite group, a supreme court, if you will, of decision makers in the city of Jerusalem, the best of the rabbis. The age requirement for the Sanhedrin was 30 years of age. If Paul was persecuting the church as a younger member of the Sanhedrin, place him in his early to mid-30s. 
some 18 months to two to three years after the birth of the church, after the crucifixion of Christ, which would indeed make him and Jesus, who was crucified at about the age of 33, about the same age. Which raises this fanciful idea. Might Jesus and Paul been in the city of Jerusalem at the same time as teenagers? Might there have come an opportunity, for example, when Jesus came to Jerusalem at the age of 12 with his father, Joseph? Might Paul already have been there for a year or two as a young rabbinical student? And might there have been a moment that Jesus, walking down the street, heeded the omniscience of his mind as the Son of God? And he looked across the street and he set his eye on a young rabbinical student. And in his mind, he said, I'm keeping my eye on you. Who knows? But we do know that God kept his eye on Paul. And before Paul was following God, God was following Paul, preparing him, giving him everything he would need to be an apostle to the Gentiles. The right language, the right passport, the right training, the right skills. But what about that other part of Paul's life? He was an angry man. He had blood on his hands. A fact that he freely confessed here in his resume. In verse 4, he said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Could God use an ugly chapter like this in his perfect plan for Paul's life? You know, this is really more than a hypothetical question. You know why? Because you've got some dark chapters in your life. Am I wrong? I do. And we look back over our lives at those days, those years, decades, in which we did, we did things of which now we're embarrassed, we're ashamed, hope our kids never find out. Maybe we didn't persecute the church, but we sure didn't love the church. Maybe we didn't attack the followers of Christ, but we sure were not a follower of Christ. And maybe we don't have blood on our hands, but boy, we sure broke a few hearts and disappointed a few people and disappointed ourselves. What do we do with those chapters? Can God take the mess of our lives and use it and stir it into the bowl and do something good with it? Boy, he did with Paul, didn't he? Because you see, what we appreciate most about the life of the Apostle Paul is that he put into words the teaching of grace. He is the apostle of grace. He wrote the doctrine of grace. And we believe that our sins are forgiven, not because of what he did, but because of what he wrote about what Christ did. And the reason that Paul could write so clearly about God's wonderful grace is because Paul depended entirely upon God's wonderful grace. And the way that Paul could write about grace 
is that he simply took the pen and he dipped it into the inkwell of his own heart. And he wrote what God had given to him. Paul learned language and tent making in Tarsus. He learned the, the law and the, and the Torah in Jerusalem. But let me tell you, he learned the gospel on the Damascus Highway. For Jesus came and made a personal appearance to him. And Paul described it in verse 6 of Acts 22. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine. Did I just misread the verse? Might be what we would expect Jesus to say to him. But what he heard was first a question and then a commission. The question is in verse 7. Why are you persecuting me? The commission is in verse 10. Arise and go to Damascus. And there you will be told all the things which are, listen to this, appointed for you to do. Appointed. Appointed. We know what that word means. If you're appointed to do something, then somebody has planned for you to do it. Correct? Do you have an appointment next week? The fact that you do implies that you've been planning for next week. If you have been appointed to do something, that implies the presence of a planner and the existence of a plan. And Paul discovered both on the road to Damascus. God had been planning his life. God had been planning his life, scheduling his days, shaping his intellect, stirring his soul. God collected all the ingredients from Tarsus, all the ingredients from Jerusalem, and he dumped them into a bowl called Paul. And he stirred them up. And at just the right moment, he pulled Paul out of the oven. Later, when Paul tells this story, he remembers Jesus saying, I have a job for you. I've handpicked you to be a servant and a witness to what's happened today and to what I'm going to show you. I'm sending you off to open the eyes of the outsiders so they can see to present my offer of sins forgiven in a place in the family. If Paul was a cake, he just got popped out of the oven. God was presenting him to the world. Listen. God has been doing the same with you. Don't you look at me like that. He has. Don't listen to all this teaching that you're just a happenstance, that you're an accident. God has been doing the same with you. Every single one of you and me. He says, I have carried you since you were born, I have taken care of you from your birth. Some people spend their whole life trying to escape their past. Trying to cover up their past. Ashamed of their past. Angry at God about their past. But let me suggest something to you. 
What if you make peace with your past? What if you realize that God orchestrated your past and there was never a day that you were forgotten by Him and that He can use every element of your past, good and bad, for something good right now? In fact, that as you understand your past, you begin to understand your present and you're equipped to face your future. Before you were born, God said, before you were born, I set you apart for a special work. Examine your history. Look at your past. And you will see that you have been set apart for a special work. No one else can be who you are. You are the only you there is. No one else has your unique recipe. God writes one recipe per person. He didn't pull you out of a cookbook. He took the perfect skin hue. He took the perfect environment. He took the perfect abilities, and he mixed them all together. And you are the only shot we get at you. You're it. So enough of this comparison. Enough of this, well, I wish I'd been born there. Or enough of this, I wish I wasn't of this skin color. Or enough of this, I wish I had grown up in a home that... Listen, is God not big enough to take all the elements of life and put them together and create the person He wants? The Scripture says God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. Wouldn't it be a tragedy to go your whole life and not find your certain thing? How do you find it? Well, one way is to look at your past. How do you explain you? How do you explain your innate ability to work with numbers? How do you explain your curiosity about colors? How do you explain that relentless compassion that you have for the, for the thirsty or the hungry? How do you explain the fact that, 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 that plans about building houses or, or helping kids or something keeps you awake at night? Didn't everybody learn the periodic table of elements by the time they were 13 years of age? No. But the fact that you did says something about who you are. You are not your mother's child. You are not your father's child. You are God's child. And He used your mother and your father to create the child that He wants. But what about the tough times in your past? What about especially the tough times that you did not create? I'll take credit for the messes that I made, but what about the times that we're victims of somebody else's mess? Can God use that? Can I say this gently and yet very honestly? You have to make peace with that. You have to make peace with that. And you have to accept the fact that God is so great that at a point in time before time, He looked at your life and He saw the evil that the adversary was going to bring into your world. And He said, I can take that evil and I can use it for good. God is not the father of evil. He is not the purveyor of evil. But boy, He can recycle evil. And He can take that which is Satan intended for evil whether abuse, neglect, poverty, difficulty, disease, anything that Satan intended for evil. 
He can take it and He can turn it into something good. And when you make peace with your past, you say, okay, God, you know more than I knew. Now use it, please, for your glory. And then healing begins. Now you don't have to do that. You can live the rest of your life ticked off at God if you want to. Many people do. Say, well, God never should have let that happen. Well, Or you can do what Paul did. You can accept the fact that God has spoken to you and said, I have an appointment for you. And you can believe what Paul himself would later write in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 when he said, all things work together in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. All things, the good and the bad, the easy and the hard, the explicable and the confusing. He takes them all and he puts them in the bowl and he stirs them up. And at just the right time, in just the right way, And if I can do that with a cake, <laughs> how much more can God do with your life?